So hello and welcome to another episode of Rebel City Podcast. This week's guest is James Doherty. I first came across James on Twitter um, as he's a prominent voice in the ACES movement in Scotland. ACES stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. I had first came across uh, ACES while studying to become a mental health professional. Um, and it was really surprising to me to read think there's 12 but to read out these experiences and to really relate to how I had experienced quite a lot of them as a child and how they could potentially shape my attitudes and my actions as an adult. I had a really nice conversation with James, he's a lovely guy, um, really down to earth. We talk about addiction, criminal justice system and we talk about like the science behind just how these adverse experiences can shape the adult that comes out. Um, and we also talk about Dr. Gabon Matty, who I've uh, encountered listening to the Russell Brand podcast and seems to be a very good speaker and know, knows so much about um, addiction and how we, we deal with it. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, if you do, give us a tweet, give us a shout out. Um, we love all the feedback that we've been getting the last few weeks, but without further ado, here's the episode with James. I made a promise. So, and welcome to another episode of Rebel City Podcast. Um, this week's guest is James Dockery. How's it going, James? All right, Paul. Nice to meet you, man. Uh, it's really okay, nice man. to meet you. Um, do you want to just give us a sort of just a wee sort of introduction to yourself? I mean, I've engaged with you on Twitter, and I've done a wee bit of reading into like what you do and stuff. But just gives the audience a chance to sort of know what we're going to talk about for the next hour or so. Right. So I, I work with the Violence Reduction Unit, and I work with Community Justice Scotland, and um, part of my remit at the VRU. It's been about, been about raising awareness of adverse childhood experiences. So mm-hmm. I've been a big part of the adverse childhood experience movement for day one. It's now traversing across Scotland. And basically what we're trying to do is, is get the full of the population to understand what adverse childhood experiences are so that they can applicate and self-appropriate their own solutions to that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that's that's been ongoing for the last couple of years, but I've been well aware of the the Adverse Childhood Experience Study originated in a, a place in America by two psychologists, Robert Ander and Vincent Felitti. It was an epidemiological, I can't, can't even pronounce the name, it's not really important anyway, but they they um, done a study and what they discovered in the study was that it was originated in an obesity study. So. Mm-hmm. Their clients, their clients who had experienced obesity, he asked the question, he he came up with a series of questions to ask them okay. about their childhood. And if I remember, if I remember right, one of the questions was, what age were you when you first became sexually active? And the reason he, it got brought about to the question <coughs> is because his most successful clients kept relapsing and back and putting weight on. Right. And he couldn't understand why. And when he came up with these series of questions, one of the questions he asked, was meant to ask was what weight, what <coughs> age were you? But he asked what weight were you? Right. When you first became sexually active and one of the women said, I was 50, 50 pounds. And he kind of shook his head, did I hear her right there? Because mm. if she's 50 pounds, then she's a child. Yeah. And right, when, I'm trying to put that together there. I was thinking what relevance, but so it's just because she's so small. It, right. Aye, and when he checked her on it, um, she said she was five when she was getting abused right. by her uncle, apparently. And and it led them to ask the question with the rest of the, the cohort who were a part of this um, group they were working with to lose weight. And most of them were reporting uh, childhood sexual abuse. Okay. And that was why he came up with a study and doing it across a larger population of people. Mm-hmm. And I understand that anyway because one of the coping mechanisms of trauma is eating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And these women were eating 
because if you put weight on, you become sexually unattractive. You keep people away from you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a coping mechanism. And the reason she, she was triggered into a relapse was because a male at her work commented on how well she was looking. Right. So wow. then it triggers like that sort of, they start to think this yeah. is going to be, maybe even subconsciously, this is going to lead to mere abuse type thing. Yeah. So mm. it's, an unco- it's, it's unconscious a lot of the time. And, and that's, that's what's often misunderstood about trauma. It's probably the biggest unrecognised, unchecked, unresolved and denied issue in our culture. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the reasons why I became a part of the Adverse Childhood Experience Movement because I had been working with young gang members in Glasgow for the best part of a decade. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a big gang problem years ago. Yeah. Um, even, that, right, even right up to like maybe the end of the 1990s, yeah. there was still a gang problem in Glasgow, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I grew up in Carntine yep. and it was almost like in the summer holidays, it was like gone for a game of football. Yeah. Aye, do you know what I mean? You would g- gather on a Friday night for a scrap. Aye, yeah. and it would be less, let's say a gang fight the way that like, my dad would have described gang fighting back in the, the 50s and the 60s, uh-huh. but you were still you were, you were were still nervous and you were still like having to look over your shoulder and then that meant if you were fighting against another scheme that if you were going out of your scheme, you would be almost in like a state of fear. Yeah. Like all the time type thing. It so. became recreational. Mm-hmm. So the abnormal become, uh-huh. became normal. And Cam McCluskey and John Carnican, who set up the VRU, they brought Vincent Felitti over here 10 years ago, who was the originator of the Adverse Childhood Experience Study. Right. And listening to uh, Felitti, was, he wasn't exactly Gabor Matty or, or listening to Cam or John. He wasn't inspiring. He was, he was difficult to listen to, but his research was bang on. Because mm-hmm. it was just validating my experience as well. Because I was sitting there... And I was thinking, I've been working with young gang members for a wee while now. Yeah. And what they all report is a backstory of adverse childhood experiences, but they weren't calling it that. Mm-hmm. There was a lethal absence of positive male, I don't even like the word positive, healthy male role models mm-hmm. in their life. So they had no parental male caregiver, and the poor mans were trying their best with what they knew at the time, under the stress they were under and they had lost control of their boys, yeah. and it was just recreational violence. Yeah. And they were going out as if it was, what you're saying, as if it was for a game of football, and getting caught up and getting hit with machetes, and some, a lot of them are losing their life. Yeah. I mean, one of the worst murder rate in Europe at one time, mm-hmm. because of that. So it was a no-brainer for me to want to get involved I in the Adverse Childhood Experience mm-hmm. Study, because it's like, what comes, comes first, the knife? Because a nicer symptom of deeper-seated troubles yeah. mm-hmm. are the baseball bat, are the drug dealing, are the aggression, are the domestic violence. What came first? I mean, they're telling me stories about how they grew up in an environment where their parents fought all the time and they never really had a say in what was happening. Mm-hmm. Then the psychology behind that is that you'll need to compensate to survive that environment. Mm-hmm. And what these young men and women were doing was suppressing their emotional life. So they just didn't have feelings. Yeah. They didn't have feelings. And it was why I coined the phrase that if you've been suppressing your feelings and experiencing adverse childhood experiences for your nipper, and you hit your teenage years and you pour alcohol on top it, it's like pouring petrol on a fire. Because mm. alcohol is an inhibitor and it takes away your ability to hold back yep. all that pain you're carrying. Mm. And out it comes. And what I also noticed was these young people, these young people, there was no initiation to get into a gang in Glasgow. You didn't need to do certain things to get in. You just needed to be born in that environment. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if there's an unconscious checklist going on, running outside your awareness yep. of adverse childhood experiences. And it's as if they were saying, you get nine, you can hang about with us. Yeah. Mm. I like that the, the old phrase, like they can smell the rain. You know, we could smell we're in. Birds of a feather flock together. Yep. Mm-hmm. And our <clears throat> grannies and parents have been saying for years, you fly with the cross, you get shot with the cross. Mm-hmm. So they blamed the cross. They weren't looking at the dynamic that, yeah. that moved you to seek out the cross mm-hmm. in the first place. Yeah. I had a mate of yours that went to jail at 18. It wasn't because he stabbed somebody, it's because he's been suffering all his mm-hmm. life and that's how it's expressed itself. Absolutely. So, if, and what I also noticed was these kids weren't these young people, and they were kids, that's what they were, they were kids. They weren't um, joining a gang, and then once they were in the gang, 
train each other, right, one will get a wee group of boys together and we'll go up to Newton Mearns and we'll guide the night and fight the kids for the affluent areas. Mm. They were fighting other kids who were usually escaping the same situation as them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which, when I investigated it further and I met Greg Boyle for Homeboy Industries who runs the biggest gang re-entry programme in the world, he said, kids don't join gangs, they're always escaping something. Mm. That was just another epiphany. Mm-hmm. It was like, what is it they're escaping? And the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, even though there's only 10 on it, it discounts community violence. That's another Adverse Childhood Experience. Yeah. There's limitations to the research because it doesn't add that in, mm-hmm. and it doesn't add in poverty. Okay. But what it has done it's is... It's like a huge driving factor in some at least in the Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But what it has done is created the biggest conversation ever in Scotland about trauma. And how it shapes your psychology. No. So, like community violence, would that be? Because I can remember thinking back, there was a couple of people that would come through when they started to build the sort of nicer housing schemes, like Rob Royston, like just to say for an example that I can think of. Boys that grew up there ended up getting into Black Hill. Yeah. They also ended up, and Ed is what it would be like yeah. at the time. And I suppose if you think. If you were trying to draw the, if you were trying to sort of draw that straight line for like poverty, yeah, it'd be kind of hard to do that because these guys have grew up in an affluent area. It's just they're right next to a sort of impoverished area, and yep. so aye. So then the community violence happens like outside the home. It's not just like domestic violence. It's like uh-huh. violence amongst your peers yeah. and like getting made to fight amongst yep. yourselves and like that sort of in the hierarchy of the gang type thing. Uh-huh. So the more emotionally and psychologically health healthier, the more likely you are. To avoid the, the environments. Mm-hmm. So when you look at some of the, the kids who were on the cusp of the gang, some of them wanted to be seen to be with the in crowd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they were just that wee bit more emotionally and psychologically healthy. Yeah. That's why I believe and not just I believe it, the research says it as well that the biggest predetermining factor for ending up in a gang or addiction or prison is inequality, poverty, and adverse childhood experience. It's a perfect storm. Mm-hmm. And that just sounds like every Glasgow scheme. <laughs> but it's like, yeah. I think when I first encountered um, adverse childhood experiences, it was at, well, I was at uni um, and studying, uh, it become a counsellor and somebody mentioned it and I read up on it. And I was thinking, this is just a checklist of living in Glasgow. Like I, nearly every person yeah. that I know has get at least one or two of these. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I know I recognise <coughs> four, four in myself. Do you uh-huh. know what I mean? So in that respect, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm, you know, less educated in this field than Paul is, but I'm, I'm getting the broad gist of what you're talking about in terms of ad- adverse childhood experiences. But it sounds to me as though there's maybe not to put you on the spot. We're not testing you here, but there sounds to be like some sort of checklist in play here. Is there, is there an ex- an exclusive list, or does it just is it situational? Does it depend? There is a checklist, so there's mm-hmm. 10, there's, if, you, if you've experienced emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, right. if you had a parent who's been in prison, drug addicted, um, what's the other ones? Like a single parent home, it's one of them, isn't it? Like if they're ah, separated, parental, like broken Parental home. separation, mm-hmm. that's one, of parental imprisonment, a parent with mental health, I'm assuming issues. a parent that dies when you're young as well must be one. That's one as well. There's only 10 on it, mm-hmm. so that's the limitations of it. Your, AC, your AC's IQ needs to be broader mm-hmm. than the 10 that's on it. That's what I'm saying about taking into account poverty. The stress that puts in a family unit is mm-hmm. unbelievable. Yep. That's an adverse childhood experience. Community violence. Mm-hmm. Systemic violence, being exposed to the system. There's stuff that's known it so so the it is limited in 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 that respect. Yeah. But what it's done is created a conversation. Mm. Yeah, so that the the debate can get wider. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. One of the main things that I, I took through what one of the Gabor Marty things I was listening to, I think he said that he, he did he go to a jail in Canada? Um, and said that it was the biggest asylum that he'd ever, ever visited. That it's like not one person in that prison was mentally healthy. Every single one of them was just yeah. mentally ill. It's not about them being criminals or like one of the these the, my things that changed in me was this idea of like a junkie. Yeah. Like when I was growing up, it was like almost like 
you don't don't pay any attention to them. He's a junkie. Do you know yeah. that kind of way? Yeah. And over the course of doing this podcast and speaking to more people about addiction specifically, because it, it is rife. Like as you're yep. saying, it's not just like they talk about heroin. It's alcohol, cigarettes, food, whatever it might be. Like addiction's prevalent right now, <clears throat> and um, one of the main things that's changed in me talking to people about addiction is is that these people. I don't know if 100% of the time, but they're, they're victims. They're yeah. no, it's no some, somebody wakes up one day and goes, do you know what? I'm going to just start taking heroin because yeah. I don't give a fuck. It isn't that. It is literally like, it is like a sort of, um, like a, a, a cycle that ends up at these at harder yeah. things like heroin because it's just introduced to them bit by bit and every new thing they try, they escape even more. Yeah. even more just deeper than the rabbit hole yeah. and the conversation that you're talking about I'm really proud to live in Scotland actually because we're starting to talk about addiction on these terms it's not yeah. about the individual and this is them choosing to, mm-hmm. to be like this it's <clears throat> it's about well what has happened to them so that they've yeah. ended up at this place and how can we stop that happening in the future absolutely so Gabor's definition of addiction is the best I've heard uh, he says addiction is any behaviour that gives you short-term gratification despite the long-term consequences. Mm. And he said that the centre of all addiction is a hurt. And then 14 years of working in the downtown east side, he never worked with one female client who was heroin addicted, who wasn't sexually abused in their childhood wow. in 14 years. And that's mind-blowing. And if you look at and this is an academic study in that field, so this is not like a handful of women he spoke to. Yeah. This is a 14 years, you know, probably thousands of women he spoke to. Absolutely. Wow. So the, the downtown he says got the highest concentration of drug addicts anywhere in the world, mm. and they're just hemmed into the one place. It's just a nursery for trauma. Mm-hmm. I think that's the way he described a lot of the prisons, are just nurseries for trauma. Yeah. My pal Alec Cochran, who works with the Wise Group, says that... Um, Berlin is a housing pen for the NHS. It's just for the people who are traumatised. Mm-hmm. And the rehabilitation process isn't working because it doesn't fully understand what it's trying to correct. Yeah. And so I, I've, I've got my own experience with addiction as well. Mm-hmm. And Gabor changed my mind on how I viewed addiction as well. Because yeah. I used to think, when you say addiction, I thought drugs. Yep. Mm-hmm. And... And now it, now it encompasses just the escape for your reality. Mm-hmm. And young people would say to me, things in the gang, in the gangs, they'd be like, I'm just going to get out of my nut at the weekend. And I'd say, What's going on in that nut that you need to get out of there all the time? Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, Yeah, he knows, kind of thing. Because mm-hmm. they're always escaping something. Of course. And we, need, we need to look at what is it people are trying to escape and why is their life so fragmented and. <clears throat> and painful that they need to seek relief from a substance or a behaviour if it's gambling mm-hmm. or, or any other behaviour that's no substance mm-hmm. related. There's a lot of times people just have destructive behaviours like we were talking the other week about and I, and I, I was open about when I, I reflected on like some of the relationships that I've had and I don't mean like girlfriends even, just mates yeah. where I've been so destructive and sort of looking back I used to just think you were, a, you were an arsehole but mm. now I'm starting to see, no, man, it was all about you just needing something, just yeah. something to take your mind off of getting inside and sort of going, what's going on inside me? Like, uh-huh. what am I thinking about? And I think, like, see, one of the interesting things is about mm. in mental health is that you're the most important person to you. And see if society's telling you that you're a junkie, you're an alky, yeah. you're a waster, like... You're stealing, like, I think about some of the attitudes that, like, the red tops and the Daily Mails have took towards oh, yeah. people that end up on benefits. Well, uh-huh. They're scroungers with, like, scum of the earth rats. That must have a serious impact on sending people even deeper into their addiction Absolutely. because they're feeling like shit about themselves. And how do we get people out of that? Do you know what I mean? It's well, we're living a shame based culture. You look at politics. A politician makes a mistake and they shame the life at them publicly. So if they're shaming each other, what chance is the street addict got mm. who's already carrying enough shame to choke a horse mm-hmm. with what's happened to them and they're trying to beg to get a tenner together to get enough 
for a bag to square them up for a day and make them feel better in the world. Mm-hmm. And you've got people walking past them, spitting on them or looking down their nose. Whilst kicking them in their sleeping bag as they sit <clears> in the street, do you know oh, what I mean? Oh, that's stuff that I see is becoming a fucking trend, do you yep. know what I mean? Which is even, it's even, it frustrates me as well because one of my delusions <clears> was I expected the people in power and the people uh, <clears throat> who are dishing out, for example, senses to understand the dynamic of what's happening in people's lives and what leads them to get to a place where yeah. they're so wounded and so, so much pain mm. that they need to seek relief in a substance. And if you look at our justice system, for example, we're locking people up and giving them life sentences and instalments for being drug addicts. Where, where do we draw the line with it being a public health issue? and a criminal justice one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not saying we should let people have willy-nilly for breaking the law, but if I'm a judge and I've walked up somebody five times for shoplifting to feed a, a low-level drug addiction, mm-hmm. that they're no, they're, they're no Pablo Escobar, they're not yeah. trying to build an empire and fly yeah. it in and out of a helicopter, mm-hmm. or somebody that's stealing enough to get enough to get them through a day. Are you not breaking the cycle, you're actually providing the cycle <clears throat> with structure, because yeah. they're in and out that door like and it's revolving. And me putting them in a prison, and the prisons are at breaking point now, they're too full to be yeah. able to meet the needs of the people that's in them. Where do we draw the line and go, this isn't working? Yep. I Albert mean, Einstein said the definition of insanity is repeating the same mistake, yeah. Yeah, over expecting over a different eye. result. That's addiction. Absolutely. So is the system addicted to doing the same thing and expecting mm. a different result? Are they justifying their positions? And they can justify it because they're in a position of power and they're on that side of their law and you're on that side of their law mm. and it makes it, it yeah. enables them to put their head in their power at night. I, I can get why historically like the criminal justice system has been about punitive measures um, as people, as I said, maybe didn't understand drugs and, you know, like prohibition we know essentially doesn't work. It's, it's criminalises people and makes the wrong people yeah. elsewhere millions so uh, you know obviously Portugal have had a, a pretty serious think about their, their drug laws and stuff like that and it's something I'd definitely love to see here because rehabilitation and prevention must save us more as a society than incarceration yeah. and punishment yeah you know what I mean so I mean I don't even know what we're spending on sort of prison and, and that kind of thing but I think if we can get to people and help them understand themselves at a younger age, yep. then maybe a lot of these problems don't even occur in the first place. Yeah. And you absolutely can prevent addiction. Mm-hmm. People think that addiction is caused by taking drugs, so the justice system is founded on the hypothesis of choice. Mm-hmm. You made the choice to mm-hmm. take the drugs, so therefore you can make the choice to stop them. And if they understand trauma as being the biggest driver for addiction, then need to choose his trauma and nobody chooses no. addiction. No, that's it. <laughs> it's not okay, conscious do, choice, is it? I, I, no. I don't, like, no, especially no. when the majority of the trauma that stays with people is the ones that happen in their formative years. Yeah. So nobody chooses that. Nobody <clears throat> chooses, like, their mum and dad to be, I mean, one of the things that really, like, I, I grew up in a, a two-parent household and one of the things that really sort of raised my eyebrow to it was the idea that even them just shouting at each other can be traumatising. Yeah. And I instantly went back to like situations of like me and my sister in a room like greeting, like uh. being like five. Like that's no way like for me to sit and be like my parents were shattering. Like, do you know what I mean? Absolutely yeah. not. But this triggered something in me to remember this these situations where me and my sister would sit and almost like comfort each other. Yeah. And to think to myself, fuck man, that's been an adverse childhood experience that I've yeah. had and it's stayed with me to the point where I've not thought about it for years, but as soon as I read that, it just came up and yeah. I was like, oh shit, right, so there's one. And then uh, like violence outside the home because my mum and dad never really hit us, but I grew up in a scheme and yeah. I absolutely had yep. to fight. And it's like, well, there's mm-hmm. another one and, and you're just kind of like, also as well, something that, I mean, we're, we're talking about like early sexual experiences and obviously there are there is sexual abuse that, no doubt is absolutely like rife. I mean, must we see it in almost every level of society as well? Mm. But does even things like, like just kids? Because I knew people when I was myself. Like I had experiences that I shouldn't have really had. That was too early, but it was yeah. almost like peer pressure. And like even I mean, I hate to say it, but shit like dares, mm-hmm. and you would do stuff, and you would be like, you thinking back to it and going, fuck's sake, man, why would we be doing that? But is that the same? 
So is that is that a <coughs> similar sort of thing, or is it like only like sort of sexual abuse? No, there is an element of peer pressure on why you'll try and do stuff to fit in, mm-hmm. but there's also an element of the pressure coming from within you that need to fit in. Mm-hmm. That's an attachment dynamic, and what attachment theory is saying that if if you've got a, wound, a wounded attachment style, so if your parents are arguing all the time and you can't even process stuff for them, or if they're not emotionally available, that's another one. But lack of emotional availability, because mm-hmm. everybody's. Everybody gets stuck on the things in the adverse childhood experience research that says they're the things that happened that should never have happened. And everybody agrees that yeah. kids shouldn't experience domestic abuse, mm-hmm. they shouldn't experience sexual abuse and so on. But nobody's talking about the stuff that should have happened that didn't. And that's emotional availability. Mm-hmm. That's being able to go to your parents and say, um, I'm struggling today, man, for the... I'm experiencing insecurity or frustration hanging about my pals. I feel as if I need to fit in, and that never gets processed. I think that's the biggest ace in Scotland. Mm. We completely don't do feelings. We're push at doing feelings in Scotland. Mm-hmm. In fact, we talk about them about a year after we've had them. Usually at a pint at the works night out or something, you're like, ah, that fucking bam, blah, blah. Guess mm. what he says to me six months ago? If you can't assert yourself to the moment of how you feel, and you're regurgitating it six months later, an anger, then it isn't an anger, because anger, the healthy expression of anger is appropriated in the moment, yeah. and you're setting a boundary, mm-hmm. that's healthy anger. But when it's six months later, and you're still angry, that's resentment. Yeah. And resentment means to refuel. It comes to the Latin expression, resentere, which means to refuel. Okay. So you're refueling old anger. So I work with people who are still feeling anger for stuff that happened to them five, six, seven, Eight, nine, ten. Yeah, year old. I, I still, I still get well, not so much now because I've, I've started dealing with shit. But a couple of situations when I was away that would still Aye. make me be like, "Fuck sake!" Do you know what I mean? Yep. If I could go back, I'd do that different. And it's like, mm, it's not very healthy. That's yeah. not a healthy way of being. Just no. Thinking about times when people have mugged you off as a ten-year-old, and you're like thinking about what would I have Aye. done. You replay it in your mind, yeah. thinking, what would I have done there? I'd have done this, and you're like, yep. mm, that's, that's not a healthy way of being, man. And that's why, I mean, what you were saying a minute ago, about parents are just doing their best for what they know at the time. Mm-hmm. So it's why it can never be about blame. Because if you get stuck in blame, then you're avoiding taking responsibility for your own, your own stuff you need to work on. Yeah. Yep. And there's this uh, school of thought that it's about blaming parents, and it's like, well, where does it end? Do they blame their parents, and then they go right down through the family tree? Yeah. And... But that's again a, a lack of emotional intelligence. That, I find that a lot. Exactly. I try to talk to, and we've encountered, you know, numerous people online and in the studio when we've been talking about, you know, various traumatic and health issues and stuff. And sometimes when you come back for a, a relatively sort of, you know, experienced point of view, you they often get a, well, hold on a minute, just because you maybe play devil's advocate on a point, what you get back is really defensive because people in a lot of cases don't. You know, know how to separate what you're saying for how they're feeling. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that's what you're talking about when it, you say parents feel as though we're pointing fingers at them and blaming it. It's because historically yep. they suffer for the, the exact same issue that we've got at the minute. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. My, my two parents, for example, tried their best with the tools that they had at the time. Mm-hmm. And if they knew then what they know now, it would have been different. Absolutely. I know that for a fact. So that's <clears> why awareness <throat> is important. Mm-hmm. If you're not aware of something, how can you change it? Or how can you apply solutions to something that's totally running outside your awareness so it's just sitting there yeah. all the time? And that's the way trauma works. It just runs outside your awareness and you'll try and treat it. You'll try and self-serve it all the mm-hmm. time and you'll yeah. not know what you're trying to fix. And that's what addiction is for me. It's an mm-hmm. attempt to relieve pain. Definitely. Something that interests me in this field, um, we had a guy called Chris McQueer, I'm sure you, you, have you heard of Chris before? It's like an author, he, he's from uh, Shettleston and he's yeah. wrote like a series of short stories that are really funny, but also they shine a light on some stuff that you're like, I remember that guy and I remember this situation. Uh, and he writes a story about the three pint glow. Um, and this is something that, I, that just came into my head there, is that do you think that if people need that, two, three pints to then, you know, they'll commit their shell a wee bit. They should be like thinking about, why, how can I not commit my shell without, they're like, yeah. that's where the self-serving comes in because yes. in their subconscious they'll go, right, when I have a drink, 
I'm a great guy and yeah. people really like me when I'm having a drink. Yeah. So then it's they need that. Like you can't go out and have a social situation yeah. without lubricating the I mean people say that alcohol is the best lubricant for social situations. Yeah. It's like maybe we shouldn't need that. Absolutely. Sake, to like relate to each other and be able to tell each other, like having a drink and then going, Oh, I love you. Uh-huh. And it's like, well, how can we not do that fucking sober? Do you uh-huh. know what I mean? It's fucking mental. That. It's so mental. You're right. So alcohol's an inhibitor, so it takes away your inhibitions. We know that. But nobody sits and asks, why can I not arrive at that place when I'm sober? Mm-hmm. Why can I not regulate myself enough to be able to be emotionally available to the people I really care about? That I need a drink to be able to tell my man da that I love them. Or I need a drink to be able to tell my wains how much they mean to me. Or I need a drink to give my pal, my work colleague a hug at the work night out. Why can I not do that stuff sober? Mm-hmm. And that's a symptom, I think, of the lack of emotional nurturing that we're supposed to get in our childhood. Because yeah. attachment science is telling us that 83 is the most important years of your life. Yeah. It's where you learn how to be in relationship, how to express your emotions, how to label and appropriate the expression of them. Mm-hmm. My five-year-old is more emotionally available than me than now, and she's five. And it's because yeah. I know all this stuff, I've been able to nurture it into her young. And she's unbelievable at being able to express how she feels about the world. Just mm-hmm. yeah. She's no guarded, she's no... When I was her age, I was driving with the brakes on. That's the best way I can oh, describe definitely. it. Oh, definitely, aye, me too. That, that. Recognise that feeling of being... No being able to just say what, I, what I'm thinking yep. and having to, no, because that's going to make me X, Y, and Z or make me look X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I look like that. And I used to even know, at five-year-old, six-year-old man's mental on that is crazy. I used to notice it in the East End with the kids who were involved in gang violence. They were always on the balls of their feet, always looking at their shoulder, always checking the environment for threat. They couldn't hold eye contact. You know, looking at, somebody would move and they would look past you all the time. And going through there to where I stayed, I stayed in Finiston in the West End, there was there'd be a subtle, I'd noticed a shift in energy from moving from the east into the west. Yeah. And I would sit and get my dinner in some of the restaurants or the pub restaurants in the West End, and there was nobody measuring the environment for threat. Mm. There was you get in a pub in the East End and it's like tumbleweed when you're oh, on the door. Something <laughs> <laughs> not a western. Aye. So that's today that's today with the environment. Mm. So environment's probably one of the biggest aspects of understanding adverse childhood experiences because your brain's shaped in response to the environment. Mm-hmm. So John Carnican, who I love John a bit, said, if you grow up in a war zone, this was the words he used, see if you grow up in a war zone, become a fucking warrior. Mm-hmm. And what he was describing was, you'll need the tools in that environment to survive that environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that's that's a normal adaptation to abnormal circumstances mm-hmm. and the behaviour do not meet social expectations of behaviour, but it's appropriate to that environment. Absolutely. Therefore that's why we've got a justice system that's cycling these people through them all the time. Mm. And I'm like, what is it what is it we're actually doing? How do we expect to punish these people into a better way of living? Yeah. When all odds I've ever known is pain and suffering. And we keep adding to it and expecting a different result. Yeah. Because yeah. at a point, people look, you know, having been in the, the doldrums a few times, no, maybe to some of the extents that we're talking about <clears> here, but like at a point when you're only being exposed to that negativity and you can only like go through the motions of the cycle that you're in, what uh, it's. God, I've done that again. I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> Sorry. See the the, well, the yeah. systematic like part of it, and like what I find really concerning um, is the the parallels that you see in the urban areas in America, and the even though we don't have the gun violence, but you talk about people talk about like the way New York used to be or like LA parts of that, and. You, you hear the stories and you're just kind of like, that's the same as Glasgow. Do you think it's been, that that's just been something that just so happens to have happened, like came about through whatever gentrification and the industrial revolution? Or do you think that it's been purposefully done like that? That we're kept in this sort of like, you were saying like we're penned in. This is kind of where I was trying to get it like there. segregation, yeah. but without any sort of formal segregation, Aye. but the working class areas stay working class and, you keep them out like that type of thing. Do you think that's been done purposefully, or do you think that's just part of 
just the way it's it's materialised. Well, personally, personally, I don't think it is because I, I like to think um, human beings by their nature are compassionate, and I I don't think human beings are wicked enough to want to keep people in misery. But there's there is a psychology behind it in regards to why they don't do something about it. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it's today we if you look at um, Gabor speaks about it as well, how a lot of the elite have got their own trauma. Mm-hmm. And I think a symptom of that trauma and how they play it out is that they don't care. They lack empathy mm-hmm. for people who are living in poverty. Mm-hmm. and they, Because a lot of them think that they chose that or it's laziness. They're only choosing to work their way out of it. Yeah. Rather than looking at the conditions that created that to happen in the first place and how they play a big part in that We we not eradicating poverty mm-hmm. structural inequality absolutely because yeah, I mean we're, we're rich enough especially in this country but and in America as well and plenty others that we're rich enough to take care of us yeah. like we don't need poverty like we don't need <clears throat> people sleeping on the streets I mean I work literally 5-10 minutes down the road in Sucky Hall Street and when I'm on my way to work for Charing Cross down to the sort of lower end of Sucky Hall Street I must walk past at least 10 or 15 yeah. predominantly men sleeping in sleeping bags yep. and I just think to myself like this is like a time machine we almost had done with this do you know what I mean like yeah. or maybe that's just my own ignorance I don't, I don't even know but it feels like in the last sort of five ten years it's kind of went back we've took steps back the way we're no moving yeah. forward anymore like we're, we're shifting I think it's quite interesting you're saying that a lot of the elite I mean, say that with air quotes of get their own trauma because they most certainly do. I mean, the majority of them get shipped off. Yeah. Don't have their parents or they might like re smog. Mm-hmm. He'd a nanny. Yep. Do you know what I mean? For yeah. the vast bit right up until he was like twenty fucking five year old or something, <clears> he'd a nanny. So yep. he didn't get that nurturing for his parents and now he's and compassionate and now he's like, yep. no, they, they they should choose. That's a choice and it's like mm, And this um, is kinda of what strange. I was getting to before I got lost was that and and like all of these things, is there a, is there a part of people that when you went through the cycles, went through the systems a number of times, and being brutalised by it, that you just accept that this is part of who you are? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like because you've been told by the media, by the elites, by the system, by you know criminal justice, etc., that this is who you are, and you know this is how we're going to continue to deal with you. Is that way? I think at a point people just accept that that's that's yeah. who they are, mm-hmm. and that's what that's what when life intends for them. Yeah, you know what I mean? so it's, it becomes, it's learned helplessness. That's, yeah. an, aye, that's a good term, actually. The abnormal becomes normal, and the unacceptable becomes acceptable. And that's what you do with how you're conditioned by the environment. Mm-hmm. And unless you get the right support, or, or, or you get to a place where you're like, I need to do something different, because the two of them need to run parallel with each other. Yeah. So my experience was, Hitting a bottom, it was sufficient enough to go. I'm sick of being in this way of life. I need to do something different. Yeah. But nobody, everybody asked me the question about what was it made you hit bottom. They always want to know about this magical bottom, right? Mm. And I'm like, listen, I was bouncing along the bottom for years. Mm-hmm. What made it possible that I was able to recreate my life was the support that was there. Yeah. At a specific time where I say that I had enough, and I managed to get the right support. And I wouldn't have made it. I would have bounced back to the bottom mm-hmm. and stayed there. Okay. And it would have just been abject misery. Absolutely. And obviously the misery for <coughs> other people because I had a, a two-year-old kid at the time. And if I hadn't managed to turn my life around when she was at that formative stage of her life, it would have been a disaster Absolutely. for her. Even with the best intentions, I would have damaged that wee lassie mm-hmm. unwittingly because I wouldn't have had the power not to do it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what made it possible was... Uh, the relational support and obviously a big dose of my willingness because yeah. I was willing to go and do the digging and look at mm. the stuff that was caused by failure. I have like when I think about this and um, know that I, I would ever think like this but I've I've played devil's advocate in my mind and sort of posed the question is this just taking responsibility off of people and you know what I mean like sort yeah. of giving them an excuse to be an addict or whatever it is yeah but I don't. I, I genuinely don't think that. That's just the, the, the sort of devil's advocate playing out. But the yeah. part where the, the individual does need to take a bit of responsibility is yeah. exactly what you're saying, is waking yourself up and 
Aye. Going like I need to do something about this Aye. and being willing to do something about yep. it. But you do you can't do that by yourself. Yeah. You need right. that support. You, you know, do it for yourself, but you can't do it by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You, you that's dead hard for a Western Scotland male who's grew up in a scheme where there's been chaos, been in and out of the prison system, caught up in all the madness, and there's a part of you that dead vulnerable. Yep. Mm-hmm. And you've managed you've had to mask that part of you for, for years. Especially when you take into account the Industries that have collapsed through that period of time all across Scotland as well, you know. Uh, I mean? And it goes back to that, um, like when you talk about Rhys Morgan, blah blah blah, you can't transmit what you've no got. So, see if you've it's like asking people to be more compassionate and more empathetic is like asking a child to speak fluent Russian when you haven't taught them it, mm-hmm. <laughs> they just can't arrive at that place. Yeah, and that's got to be nurtured into young. So if you've not got that somewhere and it's it's developmentally it's not been healthy for you, mm-hmm. then you've got work to do. You've got repair. Mm-hmm. You've got a lot of work to do on yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's my experience. I had to do hundreds of work on myself. I had to get into trauma therapy and all that. And when I came out of therapy, I was like, people need to know about trauma. All my pals were still in the chaos. My, my be- two best pals died with drug addiction. Mm-hmm. My best mate, Died face, face down in his man's house and he was one of the nicest boys, a gentle giant, one of the nicest boys you could ever have met. But I, the only difference between me and him was I'd had a wee lassie and that kind of set a, that kind of lit a different part of me up but I yeah. was like, he never had that, you know what I mean? Mm. He never had that. No, it's no life-changing event. Yeah. Aye. So that's, that's having a kid, doesn't it? It changes your life. Do you know it pulls, you, pulls you right out of your self-centred lens. Because mm-hmm. I was viewing the world through yeah. a self-centred lens at the time. Mm-hmm. And then I had my wee way and I was like, that isn't about me anywhere. I need to look after this wee thing. And if I don't get it together, then she's going to get damaged. And mm-hmm. I don't know where that came from. That was the language I was using. Mm-hmm. That was my internal dialogue. I know exactly what you're talking I'll about. I'll damage man. her if I don't do something different. That kind of set me on the journey to where I'm all the day. But it was also probably because, see the support I got and the the people that helped me, it was compassionate and it was empathetic, it was kind and it was loving. And when I got better, I see things like, I never had a criminal justice issue, I had a public health issue. Mm -hmm. And I got returned to health. The justice issue took care of itself. Yeah. Never yeah. offended again. Mm-hmm. It was like, because I was healthy. Yeah. And I had looked at my trauma and why I'd arrived at seeking relief in alcohol and substances. Absolutely. And done all the work that I had to do on myself. And then I went out and I was like, do you know what? I'm going to reflect this back out into the world. I'm going to help people. Because mm-hmm. people helped me. Yep. So it's the same term that hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. But helped people help people and all. And you only need to look at some of the the biggest movements in history. Yeah. Like the uh, women's aid movement. Yeah. That's women who have been abused to help other women. Mm-hmm. And they're some of the best at doing it. Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, Gambles Anonymous. Narcotics that. Anonymous. Cocaine Anonymous. Yeah. Gambles Anonymous. Overeaters Anonymous. Mm-hmm. All, these, all these fellowships are existing because of human suffering. Mm-hmm. And an attempt to alleviate relieve that suffering to help other people mm-hmm. and that's why I think they're so effective at what they do and they very rarely delve into why they work so effectively Aye, that's it, and when you look at it in its essence and boil it right down in its core it's all about relationship yeah it's about your personal but experience if, if you've been hurt in relationship but it's the hardest thing to, yeah. to move towards because you heal in relationship as well but if you've been hurt it's dead hard how do you trust them and I think that's why and places like that work so well because they've been there yeah. and they know they've been there and there's that uh, that commonality they've shared in yeah, a common they've, yeah. they've, that's it they've shared in a common suffering and I'm like imagine we could do that for the justice system for example mm-hmm. like you had an army of people who had offending history who'd managed to turn their life around they'd done their work and mm-hmm. they were new I think of what kind of advocates these men and women could be to come and go across the city and the world and, and talk about their experiences. I don't really see much about, I mean, I, I, I don't <clears> know if it's, again, like just my own sort of blinkers and where I grew up, but there was a lot of heroin addiction in Glasgow yeah. and you don't see 
any sort of like peer groups that were talking about like alcohols. I don't. I've never seen like a heroin <coughs> like recovery where they're, they're coming together, and they're helping each other. But oh, there is. Right. So that narcotics def- anonymous. Right. Okay. Uh, predominantly, people who have experienced heroin addiction will go to narcotics anonymous. Right. So there's no heroin-specific one, but no, there's one for, like, no, narcotics. No, the reason it's called narcotics is because it's all mind and mood on chemicals. Mm-hmm. So the solution to addiction is no using anything. Mm-hmm. Their f- philosophy is, how can you cheat a drug addiction with another drug? Yeah, which just shits on from a great height, the fucking epidemic that we see in fucking methadone. And yeah. this idea that weaning people off a, a, a hard drug with another hard drug. I mean, some of the stuff that you read about methadone, it's, it's worse. It's worse yeah. for people. I mean, obviously, like, if 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 there's people out there that are taking heroin and it, it's cut with all sorts of shit and, like, they don't know what they're putting yeah. in their veins, obviously, I would never be an advocate and going, like, oh, heroin's better than methadone. But yeah. Yeah. the devastation that methadone has on people's bodies, people's mental health, like, it just... It's a horrible drug in itself. Yeah. And we've decided for some reason that that is the best way to get people off a hard drug is to give them another hard drug, which it's is cheapest, just... It's become... easy, easier, softer way, isn't it? Right. It's, it's, it's the cheapest cheap, option. It's the cheapest option, aye. Mm. Because if you look at... Do you know where methadone originates? No. So Nazi Germany produced methadone. And when the Americans overthrew the Nazi... War machine yeah. they discovered it that they'd been giving it to the soldiers to lull them into a false sense of security so they could stay in the trenches longer and fight, and they were using it as a painkiller. And an American psychologist decided to take it back to America and use it to treat as a replacement for opiate addiction for heroin addicts. And they've been using it ever since. So we've now currently in the modern addiction problems gets treated by a nineteen. 19- 37 Nazi Germany produced That's insane drug. That's it's, Wow It's crazy It's but absolutely crazy It doesn't surprise me that much if I, When you think about it, it They don't come up with no. anything better Aye I, I mean We probably do But I mean I, I think like When you go back to America Look at Their Like crazy uh, Healthcare Students, system Has yeah. now got people Hooked on yeah. Opiates But by A nice brand name And they're doing so it To their range Never mind Do you know what I mean I'm all for harm reduction No, I, I I'm a I'm a critic Of methadone I think um, It's a short term Solution To an even bigger problem mm-hmm. If you don't Give them A structured way Of getting moving get, After getting it Getting off leave people. They shouldn't be leaving People parked on it mm-hmm. And if services are leaving people parked on it, they need to be held accountable. Yeah. Because if they're not managed to get herself off it, it means they'll not be able to date in the community. So that means mm-hmm. they might need residential drug treatment. Mm-hmm. And I also think that a lot of the drug services don't fully understand the drivers for addiction, mm-hmm. like trauma. Mm-hmm. So it's only in the last few years we've only really started talking about trauma yeah. and adverse childhood experiences. It's a very new thing, isn't it? Like- yeah. So a lot of... The addiction services are founded on the hypothesis of choice as well, or the mm. disease model that addiction's a disease mm. and it's passed in through the genes. And there's new evidence, scores of evidence and data and research to say that it's got no very much to do with genes. Probably more about traumatic experience. Yeah, it's more to do with development. They're passing down the, the experiences yeah, that the their behaviors. parents have them. It's behaviours that their parents learnt for their parents that get learned. Do you know what I mean? It's definitely like... I think um, most addicts, they unwittingly go into addiction. Like for example, so if you've experienced trauma, you have a wounded stress response. So if you've got an overactive stress response, you'll be discontented and ill at ease in your own skin. And if you purely by fate are hanging about with the older mob and they're smoking a wee bit of green and you've got that need to fit in mm-hmm. be part of the in crowd mm-hmm. and nobody's seen as a shite bag and they pass the joint round and you're not really wanted there but you do it anyway and it changes how you feel and it saturates that overactive stress response mm-hmm. because cannabis is an analgesic and most people who get into addiction started off with a puff that's why they say it's a gateway yeah, drug yeah yeah it mm-hmm. started off with a puff. So if it's an analgesic, it means it's got painkiller properties. Mm-hmm. If it saturates an overactive stress response and makes you feel better, of course you're going to want another one. Yeah. Why would you not want another one? 
mm-hmm. and that starts the cycle, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And that's addiction. a better understanding of people saying that cannabis is a gateway drug. It's trauma is a gateway. That's exactly what I was just going yeah. to say. It sounds like trauma is a gateway drug. It's a gateway to everything because, like you're saying, there's, there's plenty of people out there that daily users of cannabis and don't ever would never dream about going on cocaine or heroin or anything but there are definitely i mean statistically this is when you need to start having compassion and and looking at things deeper than just stats yeah Yeah. i I, I hate it when people just start hitting you with statistics and you're going but what does it prove it proves it proves that one and one equals two but you're not looking at the deeper of the one and the one and yeah. get into it and like well, we need to understand I, like understanding mm-hmm. like why people um are the way that they are have you seen any sort of research into um mdma uh, dmt psilocybin like they're starting to think about like how they can help people with trauma yeah but as we're talking i was thinking there yeah, that these are conscious expanding drugs so is it maybe just that it makes people aware that, oh wait, that's why I take that, so then I yeah. can work on this rather than having to... It, a lot of people, I mean, Russell Brand, he's, he, if you listen to his podcast, he's desperate to try DMT. Yeah, he's Ayahuasca. worried that it's going to spiral him into like, this addiction uh, again. That he, the reason being is because he's been indoctrinated with the 12-step message that one drug sets off the compulsion for mere drugs. Mm-hmm. So... They call it a, they call it a compulsion. Meaning, if you take one, you'll crave another one, mm-hmm. which which is addiction, and that is relevant because that does happen. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the, the people who are like Gabor Matty, who's a uh, runs retreats for ayahuasca, mm-hmm. he says that ayahuasca isn't a drug in the traditional sense because you're not taking it to escape something; you're taking it to open yourself up to something. Yeah, and they're to the in the setting, the setting. Is dead important. Yeah. And he says the results he's seen for people taking ayahuasca and it and it's proper setting. Treating trauma overnight. Like, we'll never go back to overnight. Mm-hmm. And I, I kinda hold the guy in high regard down. Yeah. Like he's not just saying that for no reason. No, he's no making money off the ayahuasca retreats Exactly. Like, you know and I mean? he's no seventy four, five years of age and leaving Glasgow after a convention to go to Peru to run a retreat. Because there isn't something in it, mm-hmm. and he doesn't see the benefits yeah. holistically and health-wise for people. He said he's seen people recover from illness, like fibromyalgia after an ayahuasca retreat, mm-hmm. and never need to take medication again for it. Just the the mind's control of the body. Ah, mm, that's a really interesting one. That like like illness and <coughs> oh, what happened there? Yeah, HDMI cable pop it doesn't really matter, but I, um, like illness and how your 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 mindset and I, that's something that I'm like massively interested in as well is that this idea that stress can cause illness, like, but yeah. no, if you did came at me maybe even five, six, seven years ago and said that if somebody's stressed out, they can actually be physically sick. Yeah, I would have been like. Yeah. come on wait really Aye. but it is so t- I mean Aye. I think it's indisputable now that yeah. stress is a killer like heart disease cancers all of these things are all caused by stress and are I contributed contributed to contributed we, we brought Nadine Buckharis over um, well they so we're nation guys did the year before Gabor there and she said that um, adverse childhood experiences were a bigger risk factor for ischemic heart disease and all the other tradi- traditional risk factors like smoking and yep. and it was stress so if you go back to when I was wee so when we were when we were younger and it used to be Shettleston was a heart attack oh, capital of Europe right. yeah. and I can remember saying to my dad and my dad grew up in East End so he and my dad by the way died of chronic heart disease at 55 and I said to him <coughs> why, why is it why is it where we are fae and he was like it's the fags, the booze, and the diet. And you're like, right, cool. So that's what I always was like, right, so that's what's killing yeah. all these guys, and that's why the life expectancy in East End of Glasgow is so bad. But now you're thinking about all of these adverse experiences that you get yeah. in, in the tenements and in the schemes. It's got to have played a huge, huge factor. What if the, the fags, the booze, the fags, the booze, and the food were an individual's attempt at a solution yep. to the stress yeah. they were under? 
the environmental pressures that are put on them in these days and ages are, is what's driven yep. that. Yep. So we educate, we educate uh, expectant mothers on the dangers of smoking during mm-hmm. pregnancy, but we never educate them on toxic stress and how being stressed can damage the development of your fetus while in uterus. It's crazy. So, see, in terms of we were talking about, you know, obviously you had a, a moment where you found out you want to be a dad and, and that kind of was like a light bulb thing. Um, and on top of that, you got the support that was needed, which is great. Now, in terms of the support, what do, what is the ACEs trials, that, do they make recommendations on how we can move forward? Is there stuff that it, you know, has looked into as not just the driving forces, but maybe the actual solution on the other yeah, side? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's all the traditional stuff that's already out there, like therapy, mm-hmm. group work, diet, exercise, meditation, mindfulness. Yep. They're all stuff that they know it works, but yep. because of the individuality of a person's journey away from trauma, mm-hmm. then you can't apply just one size fits all solution. Mm-hmm. So from my, in my own experience, it was an individual adventure. And it took me years, it took me years to get better. Yep. And I mean, like, to be able to look the world in the eye and say I feel part of life at last. And not saying that I've fully recovered to the extent where I can feel part of life at last. Sometimes I still feel like an imposter. that I'm, yeah. I'm outside looking in and everybody knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I don't. And people look at me and say, you would never know, but I'll say, of course, because I'm a black belt at masking it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, like what trauma, that. that's what trauma does. So you've got to fake it to make it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I've done that for as a wee boy. Yeah. So so I had to, I, I've done EMDR therapy and I've done... What's see, EMDR? Is that the, the, the light? Eye, eye movement. Desensitisation. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. So it's eye movement, desensitisation, uh, reprocessing. So that's kind of links to what you're talking about along with the, the folk that can't. It's the stuff that's stored in eye. The way she described it to me, this woman, uh, Linda Hull, she's a well known therapist in Glasgow. She um, says to me that when you experience a traumatic event, it's too much for the brain to bear or use a organism, a living being, then you've got a fantastic coping mechanism to allow you to survive that moment. Says you just take it and store it in the subconscious part of the mind. And says but every now and again something can trigger it and up it comes and you never know where it's coming from or what's triggering it. And she described the 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 fight or flight yep. response and how how it activates that. Mm-hmm. So when she was describing this to me, I burst out greeting because I was like, I've been that way for a wee guy, so certain things used to trigger me and I didn't know why they triggered me and why I got myself in situations that I did or why I acted out the way I did. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that I'd basically had a wounded stress response. Okay. And she took me through this whole uh, treatment process to the extent where the other therapist that was working with me at the time, who was an addiction therapist, it was him that noticed it. He says to me, there's something else going on for you, James, and uh, I'm no, I don't specialise, I specialise in addiction, I can help you stay away from the stuff you've been taking, uh, but I don't specialise in trauma, and I think you're, you're carrying significant trauma. He just seen it in me, and he got this woman in to assess me, and she diagnosed me as having PTSD and went through all that process of treatment and got into adult children alcoholic groups and uh, doing all those written work and exercising. Mm-hmm. Just, she, one of them told me in the group that I didn't, I didn't love myself and I had no argument against nah, it. I I you're not loving yourself up to a guy that's grew up in like that she environment. Says you don't love yourself. You don't. You're not taught how to love yourself. Uh, do you know what I mean? And I was going to be a lassie at the time, and I remember being gutted because I was like, "I'm going to need to finish with that lassie because how can I love her if I don't even love myself?" The whole relationship was a pure fallacy. It was pure codependency. Yeah. And I had to go through the process of telling that lassie, and she was devastated, and all that stuff. So it was just. If it wasn't for the support, I don't know if I'd have made it. Yeah. But I obviously had enough resilience and enough will in me to keep mm-hmm. trying for another another day. Mm-hmm. But it saved my life, that process. Yep. 
And if I can recover from that debt for trauma, then we need to open up the plethora of options for other people to understand exactly what's the matter with them and, more importantly, what they can do about it. Mm-hmm. And currently there is no plethora of options in regards to people who are navigating a lot of yeah. their justice system, for example. It's absolutely tragic because... It's almost because it's written off. Most of it's written off, didn't they? Aye, and I don't want to live in a Scotland where we think it's all right to throw some people away. No. I don't. I'm with you, man. I don't. Mm-hmm. I think everybody deserves a chance to get better, especially if you look at... So, so my whole mission of raising awareness is if people get this at the depth of day, then they will only walk through the streets of Glasgow looking at the homeless with any judgement in their eyes. They'll mm-hmm. be walking through with fucking tears in their eyes mm-hmm. at what they've endured in life. Yeah. And they'll be asking, what can we do? to help these people yeah. or more importantly what can we do to prevent them ending up in that situation in the first place I think it's the antidote to a lot of the negativity that we've, we're fed in like we're sort of modern media I think it, the, what you've just described there could quite easily be applied to you know refugees and asylum yeah, seekers absolutely. immigrants in general to the country like so much are were vulnerable people and even the disabled and yep. other guys that we spoke to in the past are so victimised by yeah. our arcane and out-of-date attitudes to like emotional intelligence and openness that yeah i you could apply of, that you could literally apply that to any number of things i've just said totally like rethought about people <clears throat> there's there's two in particular that i think about quite a lot one of them i hated i fucking hated this guy at school he was a bully he was just like he was a, yeah. he was a wee bully and i was a big <laughs> guy so I, I got it and i fucking hated him and i see him every now and again cutting about charing cross and he's clearly homeless and he's begging um, and I always think about this, it was Christmas Day and I, my brother-in-law used to work in the Chinese day in deliveries and I went out with him this Christmas Day and we were sitting and this guy came out of the, the Chinese with his ma, it was at Cranhill, Edinburgh Road yeah. and his, his ma was a, a, a heroin addict and I can remember at the time having a, a night of thinking about like, fuck man, feel, feel dead sorry for him but then going back to school and thinking, no, oh, I fucking hate him yeah. but see, I I've completely went back and rethought and reframed that and think about that guy's life must have been fucking hell growing up, man. And him coming in and putting that onto me, it was like, I, I, I did, I resented him, you know what I mean? And I always yeah. looked back and been like, I wish I'd have done this and done that. And I've went back and completely changed the way I think about it and go, wow, man, that guy, what he was going through and there's another guy, it was the exact same thing. And it's just, I just think like, he's been, He's be- that, that's been nothing to do with me yeah. that's had nothing to do with me yeah. and I've always thought that they were picking on me mm-hmm. and they'll know but they'll definitely yeah. know they're, just they're almost the passing it down the line exactly transmitting their pain exactly and that's anytime I see somebody begging if I don't have change in my pocket I at least say to them sorry I don't have any change because yeah. I think that and you see it in their eyes they're like thank you it's Aye. almost like people just walk by and I can understand why people do that because they don't want to have to deal with yeah. the guilt of seeing somebody and just, so they just not kind of deal with that. They've got their own shit. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like they've probably got their own stuff, just not quite as deep rooted as, as, yeah. as the person they're ignoring. See when, see when that was happening to you and you were getting bullied, who was your go to adult that you spoke to about it? Nabdy. Nabdy. Ah, Nabdy. So that's a symptom of you not having emotional availability in your childhood. Oh, hundred percent when you're talking about that like emotionally available parents i didn't have that do you know mm. what i mean like as i said i mean my, my dad died when i was 21 but yeah. he my dad took his first heart attack three years before i was born yeah. so my mom and dad were dealing with that and Absolutely. me and my sister uh, so i don't look back and blame you've only got to add to their stress i don't i, I, I don't look back and blame my parents for that but 100 percent, i had emotionally unavailable parents so yeah. i couldn't go to my dad see if i had went to my dad and went somebody's bullying me in school my dad would Solution would have probably gave me something to go in and hit me. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, so if your dad was about it, probably when it happened, because bullies usually prey on people who who lack strong parental caregiving, mm. male caregiving. So the fact that your dad was no well, or he wasn't about, would have rendered you that wee bit more vulnerable. Quite and, possibly, and bu- bullies have got a radar for vulnerability, mm. and usually they've got a radars because somebody's been preying on them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Aye, so they recognise their <clears throat> own, they recognise themselves and you and the imbalance um, aye. You're a reflection of their vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And, and probably they, what they hate about themselves as well. It's probably aye. like they've seen You find they've been bullied at some level somewhere. 
Oh, for sure. And everybody wants to battle the bully, but the bully needs the opposite. Yeah, this is what I'm saying. I, I've went back in my mind and just reframed it about like, it's nothing to do with you and it's everything just to do with us. It's just, that. that's just that. Like, I think yeah. that when people see, this is what we've gone full circle is with like wrapping up. Like, we need to get out of this idea of the alco- the alky and the junkie yeah. and like, oh, they're scum. Because it, it totally isn't that, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I've been an addict myself in yeah. different ways, and it, my addiction is probably one of the addictions where people, they, they wouldn't have noticed it, and when yeah. they've seen it, but it was there, and it's yeah. the same thing, I think, anyway, it's the exact same thing, and we need to stop blaming people because yeah. they get dragged up, do you know what I mean? Which, Absolutely. I mean, I, I know people that were left at, for like, maybe even four or five onwards, I mean, you, it was a, it was, there was that boy that stayed in the closest next to you that you stay like, like he, he terrorised people oh, this right, guy aye. he terrorised people but this boy was literally left what, like a, a scheme dog he would be out for the first thing in the morning and you'd see him at last thing at night and he would just be running about in, inside Rudry do you know what I mean and just yeah. left man and you're just like you think about him when I was like 15, 16, I'd be like, he's a wee dick man, I hate him. And now, as I'm looking back, I'm like, wow man, I wish I could just Aye. somehow show that guy some sort of compassion and be like, mate, there's no need for the way that you're acting, do you know what yeah. I mean? But I think that as a society or as a country, if we could make one sort of change, it would be people's attitudes towards people yeah. that end up in addiction or end up yeah. in prison or whatever it is that people end up on the streets. We need to have like a certain level of compassion for them and for ourselves when we've been in these situations yeah. and we'll look at ourselves as like, oh, I'd never go back to that. Or understand yourself and just yeah. be yourself a wee bit. I sort of like, it's all right, man. Like, right. It's totally all right. But listen, mate, thanks very much for coming in and talking to us, man. Yeah, this, has been, this is like, we've spoke to somebody about um, alcohol and drug addiction and mm-hmm. gambling addiction and me and yep. Matt talk about our own addictions and I think that this has been a sort of perfect way for us um, that's why I was desperate to get you on yeah. for us to really show people it's not really got anything to do with you making bad choices it's got to do with the yep. way life has treated you and then that's just the sort of byproduct yeah. of the way life treats you man addictions not to do with drugs no, I like now. that man see if people are out there and they're listening and they think I need to know more about ACs and f- even for their own point of view, they sort of go back. What, what should they, where should they, they try and find information about it? Well, they can go online and um, there's hundreds of resources that show you types of support you can get or understanding the actual study and how it applies to your own life. Mm-hmm. So there's the ACs Too High website. There's also, you can go on Twitter to the Ace Aware Nation and follow their thread. They've got resources on their thread all the time. So they are always tweeting about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also there's also um, there's Samaritans as well you could phone them up right and they'll give you some information about they'll give you they can direct you towards sources of support mm-hmm. as well and then obviously so there's multiple there's, sources there's loads, of, loads of like men's groups you popping just up to, here and there and you just need to type into Google adverse childhood experiences Scotland mm-hmm. and then away it goes away it goes Fantastic, mate. Thanks very much for coming in, man. I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's yeah. been really enlightening as well, even though I knew a wee bit about it. So much that you're talking like statistics are just blowing my mind. So thanks very much, mate. Really okay. appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks, buddy.